Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Spring is in the air here in the UK, the sun is out and thoughts inevitably turn to love. Particularly when you're interviewing radio aristocracy, Melvin Bragg, presenter of Radio 4 shows such as In Our Time, an arts, culture and science juggernaut listened to by millions of people, including by me as a student and ever since, a huge inspiration as I launched into a broadcasting career of my own. Melvin Bragg has written many books, novels, presented all sorts of programmes across the radio and the television. He's in the House of Lords now as a policymaker in his own right. His most recent book is Love Without End, a story of Eloise and Abelard, based on the true story of a love affair that occurred in the 12th century. Eloise, a brilliant young scholar, she fell in love with her tutor, Peter Abelard, a radical philosopher. Their letters survive and they give us an extraordinarily intimate view of their relationship. And Melvin Bragg has used those to create a historical novel which is typically brilliant. I urge you all to go and get Love Without End after you've listened to this wonderful podcast. Also, you could go to History Hit TV and we have got some big plans for everyone. We've got an exciting summer of activity. We're going to be producing the world's best history content. That's all I can say, both audio and video. We've got a special offer on at the moment. If you type the code POD6 in, P-O-D-6, you will get six-week free trial. That's completely incredible. You get a six-week free trial. So basically, watch the whole thing for free. If you don't like it, anytime you cancel, what is not to like? So head over to History Hit TV, listen to these podcasts ad-free, watch hundreds of videos that we've got on there, and get the whole thing for free for six weeks. Use the code Pod six, P-O-D-6. In the meantime, here is Melvin Bragg. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. Enormous honour. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Deeply intimidated. Tell me about the new book because it's a typically remarkable. It's a novel, but it's about this this great historical love story. Yeah, it's based on what was thought for centuries to be one of the great love stories of all time, as an equal with Tristan and Isolde and Romeo and Juliet. It's about Eloise and Abelard in the 12th century. He was the greatest philosopher of the 12th century, in everybody's opinion. In the, he thought he was the greatest philosopher in the world, but the world at that time, his world was Christendom. He, he didn't think anything about India and China or anywhere else, but he was an amazing man, a radical philosopher, tackling the church head-on in a radical way. She was supposed to be, by all accounts, the cleverest young woman in France. She'd been brought up in a nunnery. She didn't know who her parents were. She came from some sort of aristocratic background. She was well-heeled in the nunnery. She had no vocation. It was just a place to put her away until she got sorted out, as it were, with a chap who would take her off there. Nobody did, except when he turned up. She was enamoured of philosophers. She knew reams of their work off by heart, philosophers, poets, Virgil, Cicero, Seneca, on and on it went. And she came to Paris to live with her, so the man she thought was her uncle, who was one of the great canons of the church in Paris. And uh, it turns out, it, we know, although she didn't know, that uh, he was her father. And there he got Abelard to be her tutor. Abelard was not only famous as a philosopher, but famous for his chastity. He was 35 and he lived like a monk, although he pursued this jousting career. He came from a distinguished family in Brittany 
Uh, and when he was 13, he declared that he wanted to be a philosopher. His father said, come back in here and say that again, which he did. And he renounced all his titles and his lands and everything, gave them to his brother and set off to get an education and went round France. And what they did in those days was they had the equivalent of jousting. He didn't give up being a knight, except he was a knight about philosopher. They would meet people who had held certain opinions about uh, the scriptures and have public debates. And he became very good at that and a champion, as it were, and eventually ended up at Paris as this man who was taking them all on. He was a danger to the church because he brought, he used Aristotle's logic. The works of Aristotle were just seeping into the West at that time via the great uh, uh, Arab civilizations. And he was using that logic to tackle not so much the scriptures, but all the encrustations on the scriptures that people had made. This is what we should think about this. This is what Christ is really saying here. This is what we should do about that. These huge had turned the Bible and the commentaries into a massively sacred book that could not be attacked. And he, he started to examine it and thought a lot of it was nonsense, self-contradictory, got in the way, and was to do with nothing else but, uh, as it were, fortifying a corrupt church. And he attacked them. And the problem they had with him is that they publicly was very publicly recognized as a genius. So the king of France and uh, the great dukes, they liked Abelard because he was so clever. So they couldn't get him, although they tried to get him. I mean, for instance, he had two show trials where his books were burned. He wasn't allowed to speak at these show trials. He was pursued by the church authorities, and eventually they, eventually they got him. So, so was he a believer... In it was he in, what's the, what's the word an originalist? I mean, was he going back to the original text rather than these commentaries that had grown up around? Yes, it? but more importantly, he was applying reason and applying logic to this. And although that might seem very simple in our days, it was more than radical. It was inflammatory because what these things, the way you received these teachings was by faith, by faith alone. And these people say, what are these footling? people, these pagans like Aristotle, talking about with their little tricks of logic. This is our faith. We believe everything there because it's written by Gregory and, and, and confirmed by St. Anselm, and so it went on. So he was tackling the equivalent of a totally authoritarian state. He was a Christian, but the power of the church, the Catholic church in the 12th century, which began to increase, that's when he took off. And according to Dermot McCartney, the greatest writer about Catholicism I know, there's never been anything like it for its, its spread of power over numerous peoples, different languages, uh, and different parts of their life, from everything from confession to what they, how they should lead their lives, to condemnation if they didn't, and this great promise of, if you do what we say, we will give you eternal life, which people believed. They thought they were on earth to earn their own second coming, to go to, to go into heaven. But he, he attacked all that. She was an astonishing young woman. They thought, in the old days, they used to think, oh, she was a 17-year-old uh, little undergraduate, and he was this mighty man who, who seduced her. I, I don't know who seduced who, really. I, I think I, he set out to seduce her, but then he got he stopped in his tracks, in my book anyway, and it was it was mutual. But she was, more, she was much more likely to be in her 20s. I consulted the leading medievalist at Oxford, the emeritus professor, uh, Clanchy, uh, and he thinks she's in her mid-20s and all so on. And she was extremely powerful. The thing was that she was both in love with him as a philosopher, being a philosopher mattered, and then she fell in love with him. But she, she stood her own ground all the time, to the extent that, for instance, she thought that 
he, if he were married, if he were to get married, it would harm his career, which he would have done. So she, and anyway, she didn't want to marry him. She thought that marriage got in the way of philosophy. And she cited Cicero, she cited Seneca, she cited Theristatus, who said there's no such thing as a married philosopher. It just, the philosophy is too much to do. You, be, you, haven't, you don't want the equivalent of Cyril Connor saying prams in the hole or messy children everywhere. You've got to concentrate. So I will not be your wife. One stage, and this is all in the letters, the letters which were translated properly only about 50 years ago. Until then, it had been a lovely little fairy tale. And then these letters came, which knocked the socks off everybody. And she said, if the Emperor Augustus would ask me to be his wife and help him control the greatest empire in the world, I would think it more honourable to be your whore than his wife. And so there's no messing about with Eloise. Right. I was about, before you said that, I was about to ask, how do we know all this? Because this is... The letters. The letters were found... And for years, centuries they were edited or not translated, that, that we were protected from them. I've got books books of letters from 3rd century and the 17th century, and they're meek and mild. They're the sort of stuff I read about when I was 15, these two lovely scholars wandering around. But because of his attacking the church and because of his he impregnated Eloise, he was castrated. There was a blood feud on the, the family of Eloise, and he was castrated. So that was an extraordinary thing. And on it went. And when they were forced to separate, she went into a nunnery, even though she hadn't a vocation. She became an abbess and seeded other nunneries around France. He went on preaching, even though people were completely trying to go after him. And he just was too clever for them until they really did get him. The end and uh, ruined him. It condemned him to eternal silence. It's pretty nasty. So that was the story, and it caught people's imagination because of the letters as they, they then came through, as passionate letters from her, very passionate, very erotic. She spoke of the times they'd had together because they were both virgins, and, um, well, that doesn't make it more erotic, but there were some clever virgins who were finding things out for themselves, and they wrote about it quite openly. And the intensity of their relationship, and then this business after 13 years they came together again in the way she wanted she always wanted to be his friend she said i want to be your amica to, to be your i help you uh, and in, in the end they just exchanged enormous number of letters and she made great demands on him he was writing book after book after book and yet she was <laughs> had no qualms about saying uh, we have no history proper history of nuns in the history of christian history. will you write me a history of nuns he wrote a massive defining history <laughs> for her it took time after and then she would write and say we have not got enough hymns for many of our saints these are the saints we don't have hymns for will you write me hymns for these saints and he did so their love came through letters as well as in, in the beginning was entirely physical and sort of almost insanely physical. They took so many risks, they were bound to be caught right, left and centre. I always ask historians who uncover wonderful, sort of wonderful sources, when you're reading them, is what strikes you how similar we are to them or, does, or is there still a distance that comes of the interview, almost millennia in between? That's the key question. I mean, I'm not just saying it to flatter you. That is absolutely the key question in my view. I read history at university and been written one or two history books since. That is the absolutely key question because the fact is that they are very like us. I mean... You know, to cut to the motion of Venice, if they are cut, they bleed, and so on. And yet they're completely different from us. And so you're going along this tightrope. They're like us, they, they, they lose their children, they're in pain, they, they're hungry, they are hungry like we are, they have ambitions like we have, and so on. 
but they're circumscribed by an idea of society and how they behave in society, which is almost alien to us. Uh, some people are still are great believers, but this is a rigid, hierarchic society that you are there for the benefit of the next world. And that was entirely different. And the position of women was different, of course, completely different. The position of animals was different. There was, you, know, you whip dogs, you whip children. And different in, in the ways you were allowed to think. You were not allowed to think outside the Christian context. You did it at your peril. And people were, in England up to end of the end of the 15th century, people went against the sacred text and they were imprisoned and tortured as they were the Lollards in this country. And they were all over the Middle Ages. You were not allowed to err in that way at all. Should we see him in the intellectual tradition of the Lollard? I mean, as, as a progenitor of some of these ideas of of reform that then sweep through the church in the following centuries? I think he was. Uh, he was an, an emblem of that. He was, he was, uh, 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 he was known as this mighty uh, man uh, in contest. But he was suppressed, again. They were very good. The Catholic Church had been very good at all authoritarian people are airbrushing people out. You suddenly discover there's a great poet being going on in Russia in Stalin's time. Nobody's heard of her. <laughs> and because they just made her a non-person. And they made him a non-person. But his philosophy is still considered highly in this in this country, for instance, now. And he's studied and, and thought about. He, he, was, he was the real thing. Yeah, but I mean, he was never going to win. But it never occurred to him to give up. And it never occurred to him that he wasn't right. He was extraordinarily, you could say, arrogant. And he just thought he was the cleverer than anybody else, which he was. And he was right and they were wrong. And he was going to prove they were right. He, one book he did was called Yes and No. And the book took pieces from the Bible and the commentaries totally contradicted each other, absolutely contradicted each other. And he set them as exam things for his pupils. And, and you had to prove that they could be brought together by the power of reason. And this was a very difficult test. And talking about teaching, he, as it were, almost single-handedly brought about the creation of the University of Paris. In those days, when the church was, they, wealthy young men from all over Europe came to Paris to listen to him because he was such a great preacher. But in their scores, really wealthy people, Hungary, Portugal, Spain, England, Scotland, the Netherlands, they came to Paris uh, to listen to Abelard. Now, that was great for Paris in one way. It's made it a centre of scholarship, and they were good. Now, how could they accommodate these people? And they began to move to the left bank to think of a university. But horrifying in another way, because he was radicalising these people. So that made him even worse a threat. So it was a complicated situation. You've written other novels, that are, are str- so historical novels. Do you find it easier when there's a, a big a set of sources that you can lean on and give you a kind of structure or do you like writing novels, for example, what we used to call Dark Age, early medieval period, where there's there's more mystery and 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 you can you can impu- you can you can make up more. Well, I'm, most of my novels are set in my own retrievable lifetime, set in Cumberland from my grandfather's time to my own time. That's like a set of Cumbrian novels, not a set really, but a number, a dozen, which I've been writing since I was very young. So that's where the heft of it is. But history novels, yes. I read a novel set in the 7th century credo because I was interested in when Christianity came to this country, partly because when I went to university, um, I, that was the first term we talked We talked about the Celts coming in, from the not from Iona, uh, and then down to, the, down to Lindisfarne, then down to the east coast and across to Charlemagne. 
And it was places I'd been to, and I knew, we did nothing of that at school. I mean, we did, we did the Romans, and then on a wet Wednesday afternoon, they said, then something else happened, the Dark Ages, and Alfred, we did a bit of Alfred, and it was 1066, and that was that. So two things, I, I at that time was very strongly Christian, so I was fascinated by it. But also I'd been to all these places, and so I could go to them and think again about, about them. And yeah, the idea of something beyond reason is, has interested me. I've been part of me since I was very young. And I, I'm not a believer in Christianity, but I do think some, I'm just fasc- I'm not going to leave that behind because it's fascinating. And the contribution, good and bad, it's made to what we are is fascinating. Has that childhood education informed how you choose subjects for In Our Time, for example? I just love opening up that Blister podcast and it's always something, well, often something from out of left field. You've, got, you've done a lot on Islamic thinkers recently, I've noticed. And Do you take great pride in trying to remedy the defects of, of your own school experience? Well, one thing that I like is to get an education. And I'm using it for that, quite frankly, openly. I mean, I, for instance, you just mentioned Islamic. I, again, I knew scarcely anything about that, really. Um, and so we started doing programs about the great Arab thinkers, and not only the translators, but the originators, particularly medicine and philosophy and so on. And I got fascinated. We just did, we, we made that a constant thing, and we still do. Uh, and we've got it on the website, a huge amount of that. So it's finding, and I, I, I did, I didn't do at school. I, I was a small grammar school, so you, you had to make very strict choices. I dropped, I had to drop science when I was fifteen, and I was interested in that. So I do quite a lot of science about which I, you know, on the Friday before the next Thursday when I'm doing it, I know absolutely damn all most of the time, and just swap my swap. I, all I do is to get up, get up to speed, so I can ask questions which aren't stupid, and they'll do the rest. <laughs> It's the most annoying question, but I have to ask you, how much of it goes in? Are you a great polymath now, or does it, unfortunately, does it, does it go in and then flow out again? It depends, really, because and you know yourself, and people do know. I, I think that by the time you're about 17 or 18, uh, you've got a grid somewhere in your mind, the things that you've learned, and the things that you learn in those areas stay. But if it's an entirely new area, it's quite difficult to hold them. So things that, that things we do about history, say, or to a certain extent philosophy uh, and, and literature, stick around, not entirely, but a great deal. When we're doing astrophysics and that, I mean, there's a eureka moment in the middle of the program where I think I know what they're talking about. Uh, but if you, that's on Thursday. If you ask me on Friday lunchtime, it's fading. And by Sunday, it's, a lot of it's gone to the truth time. <laughs> but at least people have heard it. And, uh, I, think, uh, I think the reason is that uh, I'm very useful for people in that regard because it's quite clear that I'm asking obvious questions and that's what they want asked. And these, what is amazing about the programme is that the, some of the greatest scientists join in willingly, love being on the programme because they're, they're talking to a lot of people and because they're being asked questions, very simple questions. Or what do you mean by uh, um, a double atom? What do you mean by these terms that you're using all the time? And they, they'll tell you because they're interested in it. I have, um, but where is your, is your first love writing the novels? I mean, do you enjoy creating above all? Well, I, th- I wouldn't give up writing. I started writing when I was about 18, and I mean, I just like writing. I mean, I think sometimes I think, God, it's a lovely day, and I'd like to be out for another walk, but uh, I just keep writing. It's what, it's what I do, I like the writing. And then the other things were, first, of, because I got intrigued by making arts programs, and then it's also a way to make a living. 
but it was not more than that. And then I got the idea that what I wanted to do in arts programs was to was to take the stuff that was out there. I was in London by that time, to places like I'd come from, uh, where there was you know, no concert hall and no orchestras, no operas, no, no none of that. But television could take it all there. And actually, more than that, if we did the programs properly and people trusted us, we could get the greatest artists in the world to join in which was quite something. And so people in all over the place could find out about, uh, about, about great opera singers, about great composers. And if we did, if we did the programs thoroughly and carefully, they would know a lot about them and go on from there. So I got attracted by that. In our time as a fluke, I got fired from uh, Start the Week when, and I got put in the House of Lords because the BBC thought I would, I, I, would, I would sort of pollute Start the Week with my politics, although we'd never done anything on politics, but it doesn't matter. And then they, they offered me... Um, the Daily Telegraph wrote a damning article and they hurriedly offered me this death slot on Thursday. It was called the death slot, cheerfully, you know what the BBC is like, very cheerfully. It had never worked, the death slot, half an hour on Thursday morning. Uh, and uh, and I said, OK, well, I want to do it. I said, OK, I'm going to do exactly what I want. Nobody's going to plug a book. We're not going to mention anybody's books. We're not going to do lots of things. We're going to do one thing and with three academics, or two or three academics and see how far we can get. And I they reluctantly gave me six months contract, and there we are. You mentioned the art, bringing art to people who are otherwise excluded from it. You're now such a veteran in that world. What do you think art and culture can deliver to people? Like what, what, how does it affect their lives when they've got real? They've got you know they're worried about their kids in school. They've got problems with their health, their money problems. What, why do they need opera singers and and? and clarinetists? I think they need it more than ever, Dan. I think that they it enriches imagination. Uh, it gives them things to compare their life to. You can say it's consoling. It fertilizes their sort of daily lives and what they think of things. I think it gives an enormous amount. So let's take some very straightforward experiments. A friend of mine called Howard Goodall is a very fine composer, uh, particularly of choral music. Um, and he, uh, Tony Blair made him an ambassador for music for schools. He went around primary schools in this country. And at the end, 95% of them had orchestras and uh, choirs. Now, what you, or I did a film about it before, I don't know. What you found there, that these kids, some of them were in wretched, wretched parts of this country, which is needless to say, since the Labour Party went up, this has diminished massively. And everything changed. The kids were on time. They didn't want to be out of the choir. They didn't want to be in orchestra. They got probably the first gift in their lives. They'd be given a, a violin or something to play with or a drum to hit. They did. So they, they began to be punctual. They began to turn up for things. And that went through the school. Uh, their lives were enlarged. So I think it enlarges life. I think it tells you more about what you can be as a human being, the arts. I think it's, I think it's essential. I think cultured people aren't necessarily better people, as we know from various wars that have happened, led by some of the most cultured people on the planet. That isn't important. What's important is this mass of great thinking and great feeling and great sensations, whether it's to the ear or to the eye or whatever, get out there so that people can, they can swim in that particular sea. And I, I just think it enriches people. And it does, we see that. You get people again and again, but you must know from your program. So I never knew about that and now I know about it. And, and so it just adds, it's an addition to life. It's a more, it humanizes people more. 
Final question. In Our Time is a phenomenally popular podcast as well now, listened to all around the world. Um, and, and yet there is a problem as well with digital, is that we are less, we're, we're dipping into our ghettos and our echo chambers. Do you worry, am I part of the problem? Are people listening to History Hit and they're not then going to listen to that sort of more general thing where they might stumble across new authors in different fields and different genres. Do you, how do you feel about the internet? And, and you, you were making programmes for the BBC at the absolute peak where you were able to reach millions of people and introduce them to new ideas. Do you worry now that they're just, perhaps all they're doing is watching the Golf Channel, all they're doing is watching the YouTube channel with the with the present unwrapping, and we're becoming ghettoized, and you're not going to be able to have to play that. Someone like you won't be able to play that function in years to come. I think that's a very good point. I don't know what's going to happen in years to come. What is happening is that niche programs are becoming much more popular, and so I don't think the niche programs such as mine will disappear. But the great thing that television had in what you call peak days, when your your family was involved as well, is that there was the, a deliberate juxtaposition of Morecambe and Wise followed by a documentary. And you hope that the 20 million watching Morecambe and Wise, an awful lot of them would watch the documentary. And they did. Uh, and that was a, an educational imperative that the BBC, and very much in early days, in the 60s and 70s, ITV followed the public service thing. Now, that's gone now. You're in your own area. I don't know. I don't know what's going to come of that. But you could say, look, books have been like that for a very long time. People read certain magazines. They don't read all magazines. They might read this newspaper, but no other newspapers. This magazine, no. And they read this sort of book, not that. And yet... They find their way through life. In life, it's been enriched. You move from one book to another, one sort of area to another. You move, as it were, from from Harry Potter to Saul Bellow, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's the big question. I think it's the big question. And uh, it's now much more up to the individual. So, therefore, all the more important to broaden education as much as you can. But I've no answer to that, none. And the only answer's got to be in time. But I don't think the lust for learning is diminishing. I think it's growing. I mean, we're in the greatest period ever of invention and development of the mind. There's never been anything like it, never been anything remotely like it. At this speed, uh, with this concentration of, let's say, let's say the last 70 years, let's say loosen it up a bit, the last 100 years, nothing to compare with it. And it's still going on. And people's imagination are caught up with it. And these younger people getting involved in digital, they're, in, they're at the cutting edge of what life's like now. And they'll be obsessed by it. And then I think they'll move on to other things. Or it'll maybe sharpen them in the world they're going to face. I'm very optimistic about it because it's just exciting. Whichever way you look, all these games they play on television, all that, that's exciting new stuff. How could they resist it? Well, I'm glad. Let's finish on the optimistic note. That makes me very happy to, happy to hear that. Your book is called... It's called Love Without End. It's one of the phrases they use, Love Without End. And you can see them in stone in the biggest, one of the biggest cemeteries in the world, in Paris, Père Lachaise, which is like a little city with avenues and trees and streets and so on. And people have been buried there for hundreds. Oscar Wilde's Oscar buried Wilde, there, Morris yeah. is buried there. And, and all the Napoleon's marshals. That's oh, my little that's pilgrimage right. every time I that's go. That's right. And uh, Abelard and Elamis used to be the most visited of all the sarcophagus, it's a sarcophagus, and they're lying in stone on top, as it were, hand in hand. But uh, So they've landed there at last. So there you go. I'm sure after your book, Melvin Bragg, people, <laughs> will, people will get walk past Oscar Wilde's and head back to those two. Well, well. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. The book's available at historyhit.com slash books. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours... Our school history, our songs, 
This part of the history of our country, all over God, and finished, and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.